0: Good morning. My name is Mike. I do some of the teaching here at Trinity. Really happy to be with you here this morning. So just a quick reminder before we, we jump in. After the service today, is we're starting something called Room at the Table, where we will all get together and do, do something that the church has been doing for a very long time, and that's share a big meal. And so all are invited. If you're here visiting, please feel free to, to join in. We will be foregoing communion during the service, though, so we won't actually have communion during the service because we'll be sharing communion at the at the beginning of the meal. So, I'm going to be doing the scripture reading this morning. Let's do something a little bit different. Can I ask you all to actually stand for the reading of God's word? So, there's this thing, this tradition that's uh, practiced in much of the global church, where you know we always do it where we we read the scriptures and we say, "This is the word of the Lord." And we do that while we're all sitting, and then there's no response. But typically in the global church, what's done is, you know, the reader will read the scripture, say, this is the word of the Lord, and then in reply, the congregation will say, thanks be to God. And the reason why is because the word of the Lord is not something that we sort of just passively take in. It's not a form of entertainment, it's something that shapes us, and it's a gift, to us as God's people. And so what the global church does often, uh, you you may hear a couple of us in the congregation whisper it. I know Aaron and I will sometimes do this. If my mic is turned on too early, you'll hear me do it. But it's been a very meaningful thing for me, even just under my breath, to to reply, thanks be to God, when I hear that this is the word of the Lord. And so that's what I'm going to invite all of us to do this morning. I'm going to read, and I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and then I'll reply, thanks be to God. So let me read. This is out of Matthew Chapter 21, we're going to be doing verses 12 to 17 this morning. And if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's 826, the page number. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and when they saw the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out to the city, to Bethany, and lodged there. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So today we're continuing in our series on the Gospel of Matthew. For for those of you who are sort of learning the ropes of the the Christian faith or learning the ropes of of reading the Bible, what the Gospels are, the Gospels are four biographies on the life of Jesus that were written in the first century. And and, and like these these books, what they're they're doing is they are presenting to us the, the teachings and the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. And so this is absolute bedrock for the Christian faith, which is why we've decided to take a good long chunk of time. We've been at Matthew for about a year and a half. We're taking a good long chunk of time to just slowly work our way through it. And the reason why is because this is just foundational for us. We need the words of Jesus. We need to to encounter what he did, because he is really the one at the center of our faith. And so that brings us to today's passage. Jesus has just made his way into the city of Jerusalem, and if you'll, you'll remember, if you were here last week, he's done it in this hugely meaningful way, right? It sounds pretty innocuous when you, when you just describe it, right? Oh, he, he got on a donkey and he walked through a you know, rode through a gate. But as we learned last week, there was a ton of meaning packed into him riding a donkey through the gate of Jerusalem. He was making this giant nonverbal statement to the entire city that he is actually a king, and not just any king, but, but this particular king, this figure that was anticipated for many, many years by the Jews, uh, the figure known as Messiah. And so what the arrival of Messiah basically meant, and again, all this stuff is going to be swirling in people's minds after, after the way that Jesus entered the city. So they're thinking, all right, here's Messiah, so here's what this means. The kingdom of God has arrived. God is beginning the process of setting the world right. And for most of the people who saw Jesus enter the city they, they sort of anticipated that to look a certain way right so for for Messiah to set all things right was going to mean most likely he was going to start mustering up kind of a rebellion he 'd be a little bit of a revolutionary and then he 'd you know, strut into the, the halls of Roman power with a big angry mob behind him and basically bring peace to The city established Israel as a nation. It was a very political expectation that people had for for Messiah. And they thought that when Messiah brought in God's kingdom, two things would happen. So the first thing is whoever was a genuine believer, a genuine person of the Lord, genuinely obedient sort of member of, of the kingdom, they would be shown for what they are, right? And then another thing would happen, those who weren't a part of the kingdom, they would be shown for what they are. Those are, those are two things that they expected. So everyone who was who a part of God's people, who'd been bit, living by the way of the kingdom, they would be brought together and sort of vindicated. And that was supposed to be sort of the chosen people, ethnic Israel. And they'd be rescued and celebrated and set apart. And on the other hand, there'd be this great act of judgment. And so it, it's interesting, that's kind of exactly what Jesus does. But not at all in the way that anybody expected. Jesus does show people for who they are, but the cards don't fall in the way that most people expected if you just sort of were looking at the, the temple and who was leading it and the, the way that the nation sort of interacted with the temple. It, it, it didn't at all fit expectations. So what we read in Matthew is pretty wild. We see how Jesus rides into the city and instead of going to the halls of Roman power, he goes to the temple. He goes to where God's people are supposed to congregate, and he doesn't find God's people there. And so we have this this thing that Jesus does. It's become known as either the clearing of the temple or the cleansing of the temple. But basically, what what we're looking at in this passage is a protest. Jesus stages a protest. And he's doing it in what's called the Gentile court of the temple. So this is a court where Jews and non-Jews can both worship Yahweh. And he stages this big protest. And basically, here's what the point of the protest is. He disrupts, Jesus disrupts our homemade kingdoms to bring people, to bring together people for his kingdom. And Jesus is going to do that in a couple ways. So first, to bring people together for his kingdom, Jesus must bring them together around true worship. So here's how Jesus does this protest. He walks into the temple, and, and, and in, in the Gentile court, basically what you'd have is, I mean, especially during Passover week, you'd have just flocks of people coming to the city, and they're coming from all these regions all around Jerusalem, and some of them are coming from very, very far away. And when, you know, so, I mean, in some ways, you almost have, like, the nation of Israel all in Jerusalem all at the same time, right? I mean, there's, everybody's together. The, the city would grow in population by, like, 20 times. I mean, it was just this incredible group of people. And so what, what you would end up having is, is folks would would come to the temple, and, and this temple sort of embodied national life in Israel as this huge institution. When you would walk in, you'd be instantly confronted first by just, all the faces of the Jewish diaspora, you'd instantly hear like the psalms being sung. So there's just endless poetry being spoken and sung, and there's sacrifices being made just endlessly. I mean, it's just this hub of worship to, to, the, to, to your God. It's this huge institution, and it really always had been for very many years. And there was sort of this sense that you would have where you, you'd come to the temple And you'd have this sense, like, as long as this temple stands, it's proof that God is with us. It's proof that we're right with God. It's proof that, that really, we're in the right. That our lives are right, because this temple stands. And so there's this sort of, like, comfort that people would take from the temple. I mean, like, a real sense of sort of spiritual security. Not just, like, we're safe because the temple's here, but we're in the right because the temple is here folks would look at it and say, we've got nothing to worry about. God is on our side. And so that's part of why Jesus's actions in the temple are so disruptive. So for a festival like Passover, again, you'd have all these people coming, and and for many of them, they'd be coming for over a hundred miles. I mean, that might even been like the average uh, stretch of of distance that people would be crossing to get to the, the city. And so, Folks are coming so long, it's impractical to bring your own sacrifices. And so you'd have people coming, and they would actually buy their, their sacrifices in the city. right? And many of them were coming from regions that had totally different currencies. They, they, they didn't share the, the same currency as Jerusalem. And so eventually the, the leadership got this idea where they were going to put basically a first-century currency exchange in the Gentile court of the temple. And so that's what the money changers are. They're, they're there to basically make worship more convenient for people, okay? So they're there to, you know, change out currency th- so that folks can buy sacrifices in the city, and that's what they can then offer to Yahweh. So in some ways, it's actually not a bad thing, right? Like, the, 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 the purpose of the money changers being there, even the buyers and sellers, they're selling pigeons, Pigeons would have been a sacrifice for those who were in material poverty, who didn't actually have the funds to, to raise cattle, much less sacrifice cattle. Um, so you'd have folks selling pigeons. So it, like, it's a, sort of this like good intention thing. And yet here it is in the Gentile court where non-Jews are supposed to be worshiping. That's, that's where it's taking place. And it's for a nation that, that cares very much about the convenience of their worship, but not very much about worship. And so when Jesus turns over the tables of the money changers and throws them out, it's not because he has a problem with currency exchange, right? What he does, though, is he basically makes sacrifices impossible. Like, by throwing out the money changers, he makes it so that people coming in can't buy sacrifices. So Jesus functionally puts a a full stop to all the sacrificing taking place in the temple. Like, he's just like bringing all the programming to a halt in the temple. So there's just everything sort of stops. In the Gospel of John, John actually records that prior to busting into the temple, Jesus makes his own whip. So this is not Jesus meek and mild. This is protesting Jesus, staging a one-man thing against the entire temple system, throwing people out. And as he's doing it, he screams these words, "'It is written, "'My house shall be called a house of prayer.'" Well, you've made it a den of robbers. All right, so now why is he doing this? And why, why would he say that? So it's interesting, this actually wasn't the first time that the people of God had heard those words. This is actually not the first time that the nation of Israel had heard someone shout at them, you've made my house a den of robbers. Centuries before, Israel had come to feel the same way toward their first temple that, that they now did toward what was their third? In Jesus' day, it was their third temple. They'd walk into it, and they'd see the beautiful decorations. They'd hear the psalms singing. They'd see the sacrifices being given, and everything running smoothly, and the place looked rich and full of life. And so people would walk in, and they'd say, God must be on our side. But the truth is that he, he wasn't. God wasn't on their side, because ultimately they weren't on his. Instead, they, they, they would go, and they'd worship in the temple, and then they would leave, and they'd proceed to ignore the needs of the materially poor, ignore the needs of the immigrant and the orphan. They gave their allegiance to things other than God. They engaged in life as though there was no meaning above their own pleasure, and that went for sex, food, whatever. They thought worship was sort of an event, right? And the temple, it could put on a killer event. The temple event was great, and so folks would come, and they would take part in the worship event, and they would say, I am right with God, I am a worshiper. And they missed the fact that worship is a way of life. That ultimately, God desires mercy more than sacrifice. That what God wants are lives lived with him as king. He desires mercy and righteousness. And so here's what ended up happening. There's a passage I'd like to throw up on the board. Um, This is a passage from the teachings of a preacher who lived in Israel around the mid-600s BCE. His name was Jeremiah. And he saw all this happening with the temple, right? All all this hypocrisy, this false sense of spiritual security. You're going to see him mention people saying, oh, the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, right? Like, you know, this sort of casual confidence that everything is going perfectly and that they're, they're, they're totally right with God. And here's what happens. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord... Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, so that's the temple, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I'll let you dwell in this place. But don't trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to know. A veil It's no help to you. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, who's like a false god, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? So God calls this prophet Jeremiah to stand in the temple court at the gate of the temple, which is actually in the Gentile court, and announce that God is turning his back on his people because his people have turned their back on him. And the way that 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 worked itself out, the way that God turned his back on his people is he handed them over to exile. So the nations of Assyria and Babylon basically just decimated the people of God, killed a ton of them, brought the rest into exile, leaving just a few to to starve and to try to figure out how to rebuild from the ashes. So that was the form that it took. It was this this massive act of judgment. The people could not really take any true confidence from the temple because really what was happening was was an utter betrayal of who they were. So now let's revisit what Jesus does here. The first thing that Jesus does after announcing himself as Messiah— is to walk into the temple start throwing tables and then he stands in the very same court where Jeremiah stood and he says the words that Jeremiah said he said you've you've put your confidence in this temple but but you've put your comfort in the programming of this temple but you shouldn't have a buzzing populated temple full of beauty and convenience is actually no indication that God is present I just think we make this mistake constantly as Americans. When, when someone says that they've visited a good church, or when someone asks what makes a good church, I've been guilty of this too. So I'm, I'm not, this judgment isn't just like, you know, me versus everyone else. I'm, this is on me too. But there are many years where I would have answered that question with, oh yeah, I could answer what a good church is think it takes place in an aesthetic building, you know? I think it'd be real cool if you get sort of like a rundown warehouse and you just make it really awesome inside, but then it's still kind of grungy. It's perfect. We think of the aesthetics. We think of the conveniences offered us on a Sunday morning. We think of a sharp, well-done service. We think of competent musicians. We think of preachers who sound like they're going to deliver a sermon on Sunday and a TED Talk on Monday. And when we see all those things, we think... That's a good church. As though any of those things have anything to do with being close to God. And just like the currency exchange in the temple court, many of those things are not bad. We have a beautiful lobby. We have a beautiful building. Like, our, our coffee is sourced from a specialty coffee shop in Highwood called Tala. And they're rad. Like, you should go there and drink their coffee. They're great. But whatever... A congregation can enjoy all those amenities. They can have an organization that is just a well oiled machine, and they can be a hundred miles from the life that God is calling them to. The thing that makes a good church is not the building, because the church is not a building. The thing that makes a good church is not the event, because the church is not an event. The thing that makes a church good is when people within that community love God and love each other in costly ways. What makes a church good is where the gospel shapes every facet of life, where God's grace is offered and where God's grace is received. It's where the kingdom is practiced, where the way of the kingdom is practiced, not out of like religiosity and moralism, but out of an expression of gratitude for the mercy of God in the lives of his people, and because we have taken in the vision of the kingdom in such a way that it's become just irresistibly beautiful to us. A good church is a church where people pray. A good church is where space is made so that those who do not yet believe can still belong before they believe. A good church is a community of raw vulnerability mixed with an ardent pursuit of holiness. It's where people can be who they are, and it's where people are called to become who they are in Christ. It's where people trust In God. And not in an organization, not in amenities, not in administration, not in looking relevant and cool. It's where a group of people have joined together to pursue God. By his grace given in the cross of Christ. It's where the way of life made available for the resurrection is practiced. It's where sins are confessed. It's where sins are forgiven. That's a good church. And I've seen good churches in the real hip, like, warehouse space. I've seen good churches in fuddy-duddy, near-empty buildings in the rural south. But in those places... God can be met. All right, next, to bring together a people for his kingdom, Jesus must bring together people around God's welcoming grace. Let me reread the the second half of the passage, real fast. So, the blind and the lame, they come to Jesus in the temple and he heals them. But the chief priests and the scribes, they saw the wonderful things they did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son, Son of David, and they were indignant. I want to stop there. So think again about what Jesus shouts when he's disrupting the the temple. He says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. So we just encountered the second half of that verse, right? The den of robbers quote. Here's where things get crazy. Jesus is actually quoting two different prophets at once, and he's just putting the two statements together. So the first half (laughs) of of what he says actually comes from another one of the the prophets this one is also included in the in the hebrew scriptures we we often call that the old testament it's written in the writings of the prophet isaiah and his disciples it's in this beautiful part of the uh, of the book of isaiah where you've got god making just i mean he's like gushing promises of redemption to to israel he's he's you know, saying like, restoration is coming, redemption is coming, that you will become who you were set apart to be, that I will remain faithful to you even though you have not remained faithful to me. It's this gorgeous, amazing thing, breathtaking poetry as well. It's some of the most moving in the Bible. And it gets to this moment where the poetry is describing the worship of God's people as it should be, as it will be under the kingdom. And it talks about how the redemption that God that God offered in, in bringing Israel together as a people, it talks about how that same redemption was always meant to be extended to the nations, which was not something that Israel always acted on, Right? But instead, it's, it's, it's this picture of all the nations, people from every nation being drawn in, invited to join themselves to God's people, so that God's people would become this like multi-ethnic, multinational group, all united under the mercy of God, and all joining in the mission of God. So here's what it says. let will throw this on the board as well. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. So in other words, the image is of these like immigrant groups coming in and joining themselves to the people of Israel and taking on the ways of, of, of the kingdom. These foreigners I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now, of course, much of the Bible story is about how Israel mostly didn't look like this. Ultimately, Israel's a lot like us. We fall into exceptionalism, thinking that we're special. We, think, we call, fall into nationalism, thinking that there's something special about our nationality, our ancestry. Israel went into the same things and didn't reach out to the nations with the news of their God. In fact, Steve shared with me, Steve Bryan, one of our other elders, shared with me this kind of disturbing detail about an excavation that took place in the temple of the first century. So this is the temple that Jesus is standing in. There's the court for the Gentiles, and then there's this sort of gate, and then you would enter into the court for just the Jews. And there's a sign, a little placard on that gate that said, any Gentiles that step foot into this court are responsible for their own lives. In other words, what was being communicated to the nations was not a sense of a welcome into the people of God. It was sort of like, sure, we'll permit you to be here, but really, if we had our druthers, you wouldn't be. That's what was being communicated. If we had our way, you wouldn't be here. And the same would go for any kind of outsider, really. The folks on the margins of society, the blind, the lame. The materially poor. Redemption was supposed to come through the Jews, but they thought redemption was only for the Jews. And we shouldn't pretend like this is only an issue for first century Jews, though. I think we can be just as consumeristic about the church community as we can about church services. When we think in our heads, what kind of a church community do we want to be a part of, we, we often think of like a congregation of cool, relevant people who are going to help us improve our self-image that by associating with this group, we'll sort, our brand is going to be improved, right? But there's this moment that takes place when you really start getting into the community of the church. You get close enough to people that you can actually have a disagreement with them. Or maybe someone says something that you don't really appreciate. Or you start to learn the real intimate details of someone's life, and you realize, like, man, this person I thought had it all together is messed up in grievous ways. And sometimes when that happens, you start to get disillusioned and even, like, offended. You think, these people cannot be the norm, right? (laughs) There's got to be a better church community than this, right? And maybe you stay, maybe you go, I don't know, but you start to think, they must not have the spirit like I thought they did. This isn't the community for me. And we think it's insane that God would bring together people that we wouldn't approve of. The truth is, and this has been said, said before, but the truth is that God is just not that discriminating about his friends. God is just not that discriminating about his friends. He is bringing together unqualified, weird, socially inept, needy people. He's bringing together the marginalized and the hated of society, and also he doesn't care about economic bracket. So he is bringing together the hated of society from the rich and from the materially poor. And there's going to be conflict. I mean, I think about this. Two of the disciples, one of the disciples was a tax collector, which means that he basically sold out his own people to the Romans. He was exploiting the Jewish person, exploiting the Jews to the Romans. Another one of the disciples was a zealot, which would have been like a radicalized, militant, anti-Roman group, And Jesus called a tax collector and a zealot and told them to share the same space without killing each other. And he just doesn't seem to understand that this is going to be a little bit of a firebrand. He doesn't care if it's a mess. Because he isn't interested in bringing together the sort of community you stage for a college recruiting pamphlet. He's interested in real community. We should not be surprised that when we join in with the community of God's people, we join in a broken community. And if we stay around long enough, we'll eventually come to realize that we are broken too. So right after silencing the operations of the temple, Jesus starts them again, but he does it the way that they should have always been done. We're told the lame and the blind come to him. These are marginalized members of society. If you're lame and blind, good luck working. Good luck making an income and good luck being included in society. And we see them, him welcoming in the lame and the blind. The place gets overrun by kids. And, and they still remember what was being shouted the day before. Mark records this is actually the day before that Jesus enters the city. He goes into the temple on Monday. So the kids are remembering what was shouted the day before. And they start running into the temple behind Jesus as he's cleared it. He's, he's followed by a train of children. Shouting Hosanna to the Son of David as the broken are being healed in the court of the Gentiles. When you hear about kids running around in a, uh, <laughs> in a temple, I'm reminded of what most of the endings of our church services look like. <laughs> What we're seeing is this image of marginalized and broken people coming and finding wholeness in Jesus. We see those in society who who rarely get a voice shouting praise at the top of their lungs. That's not an image of what the church is meant to be. I don't know what is. So how is it that Jesus can bring together this kind of community? How is it that Jesus can bring together this kind of community? The answer is that he brings them together around himself. John records that when Jesus, so John is another one of the disciples of Jesus, and he too wrote a biography. John records how after the clearing of the temple, Jesus shouts at the leaders, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. And he's not talking about the building but what he is saying is that God is no longer to be found in this house. I was talking to Peter Mach, who goes to, he's part of the community group I'm in, and he and I, you know, he, he'll he call me during the week or I'll call him, and he happened to call me while I was prepping the sermon. And so, you know, I just ended up talking to him about the sermon. And so I was telling him about this, like, dude, it's its crazy. this, like, G, Like, it's too much. Jesus does this crazy protest, and there's all this the stuff being interwoven in the way he's doing. And, and a big part of it is that he's announcing judgment on the temple because the temple's going to be destroyed. And, it's, you know, and then Peter interrupts me. He's like, well, right, because Jesus is the temple. And I was like, dude, that's, that's exactly it. Jesus is the temple. God is no longer to be found in this house, Jesus is saying, because now he's to be found in me. Sacrifices will not be made in this house. Because I am the ultimate sacrifice. That the end of this week, in four days, from the Monday that Jesus clears the temple, he will be pinned up against a Roman cross beam and left to suffocate. He will pour himself out for broken, unqualified people. Who will no longer go to the temple to find God. They will go to the resurrected Jesus. The one who is the temple because he is God with us. There's this wild thing I want to, I want to point out. So again, the, the leaders are pretty offended by all these children running around. This is very disorderly. We don't like this. One of them could get hurt. You know, so they approach Jesus, and, and, and it's not just the craziness, really. It's, it's what they're saying. They're saying, Hosanna to the great king. Hosanna to Messiah. Hosanna to the son of David. They're, they're saying that Jesus is Messiah. So the leaders don't like that. So they approach Jesus and they say, are you going to take care of this? Because these kids are under the impression that you're Messiah. Do you hear what they're saying? I love that Jesus just gives them this one word answer of yes. Yes, I hear what they're saying. And then he he gives them this. He says, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? All right, here's where that comes from. He's quoting a poem. We know it as Psalm 8. And in it, the poet is talking to God, and saying it, the whole poem is about like sort of the dignity of humanity and and like the as well as the unworthiness of humanity, both the, the weakness and nobility of what it is to be human. But also, it's a big part. It's largely about creation, that just all things are praising God. And so, the the poet at one point says like even babies, <sighs> even out of the mouths of infants, just what it is to be children, out of the mouths of these children, you are worshipped. So in other words, Jesus is quoting a passage about how God has put praise into the mouths of children to explain why it is he's okay that he's being praised by children. What Jesus is doing is he's turning to the leaders, and he's saying, oh yeah, I hear that they're calling me Messiah. Messiah isn't the half of it. You are before the Lord. It's this just staggering, like, man, how did he just say that? When I was talking to Peter, we were talking to the passage for a while, and Peter just, in the way that only he can, I wish he was here today, he's not here today, but in the way that only Peter can, he he just said, dude, Jesus is either a lunatic or he is the real deal. I think he's the real deal. Jesus is saying that before you stands not only Messiah, but Yahweh in the flesh. Which is why we find God in Jesus. If we want a community like the one that Jesus is calling for when he cleared the temple, it will be a community that comes around the death and resurrection of God. We will be a community that that searches for God in Jesus, which will free us to confess our sins to one another, because what else do we have to hide after we've been forgiven? It will free us to forgive, because if we've been given grace, we will give it. We will be an authentic community who will take spiritual responsibility of each other, because we know that Jesus's kingdom is the greatest thing. We want it for one another. We will be a community of costly love, We'll be a community that does not ostracize people who are different from us, but actively reaches out to them. We will be well prepared for the fact that that Lake County is becoming, praise God, more and more diverse, because we will not be just insisting on sort of our homogenized culture that we've made over 30 years, but we will be adapting to whatever it is that our community is bringing to us, because it's not about maintaining just one sort of set kind of person, the gospel has gone out to the nations. And so when the Spirit brings us the nations, we will speak the gospel. We We will bring in believers as they come. We will announce the gospel to those who do not yet know the Lord. Ultimately, to bring together people for his kingdom, Jesus is bringing them together around himself. I think that's all I got. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you, Lord, for who you are. We thank you for what you communicated in, in the court of the Gentiles that day 2,000 years ago because that's us. That's most of us. Most of us, our, our ancestors, are, are the nations. And so, God, we praise you. We praise you that what you were saying was was even more than just that, you know, Polish, Irish, German people like me will be invited, but that you're also saying that broken people like me are invited. So I thank you, Lord, that you healed the lame and the blind that day. We thank you that you let the children shout that day. We thank you that you gave yourselves a sacrifice for every single person in this room. And God, I, I pray that. That at this moment, um, you would make it possible for whatever stigmas have been held out against anybody in this room to, to fall in the face of the cross. and That what they would feel, I, I pray that any words spoken by bullies or bad parents or bad bosses or whatever, that those would fall before the face of the cross. I pray that they, what they would hear is the unqualified, unflinching welcome of your grace that you have invited us to become sons and daughters of the living God and to participate in your life. We love you, Lord. Amen.